When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Beatrice Villarroel, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Now, Doctor, you are working on a new project, an extension of your work with detecting transients. But let's go to the transients first. Looking at old photographic plates, pre-space age, and seeing if there's anything there that looks like a satellite. Where is that work today? How many candidates do you have and what's weird about them? So what happened was that in 2021, we found an image where we had nine stars or star-like objects that were there in one image, but they were not there half an hour earlier nor later. So it wasn't stars, of course, it was transients, something that appeared and flashed out of the image within half an hour. And the weird thing is that it was nine of them, not one, and it was in a small region of the space. So one possibility that we were thinking of is that this might be something that shouldn't be in the sky in that time. For example, maybe these were caused by some kind of solar reflections of something artificial. However, the problem was that these images were from 1950, seven years before Sputnik 1. So what we did is that we wrote a new paper on how can we test this? Well, you can test this if you also look for uh, like multiple transients that are aligned along a line. And we did that work. Then we searched for these candidates and we actually found a few such examples. We wrote a paper, submitted it, and that paper has a hard time in the review process. I, I think there is stress among the referees. Plus there is something that has already happened to me more than once is that there are a number of astronomers that missed the fact that there were no human satellites in 1950. No, it was 1957, as I recall. Sputnik was the first. Yes, exactly. So now let me ask you this. All right, so taking this at face value and that it's not a measurement problem, the photographic plate didn't have any dust on it or anything like that, that that you've basically eliminated at this point. The question is, all right, we seem to have a window of where we could look at these again before our skies are filled with Starlink and other constellations of internet providing satellites. So we need to look quickly to try to reacquire these if they're still there, right? Exactly. Because like in the coming decade, they're going to launch another 100,000 objects. And how are we going to find anything alien up there after that we launch all these objects? It's going to be impossible. So we need to do searches as soon as we can, I would say. Can you build an algorithm that would look at unusually behaving satellites? In other words, all right, you know, Starlink satellite is going to be going in a straight line at a certain speed. But if you start seeing things moving around unnaturally, like they shouldn't be, which is a hallmark of the UAP phenomenon, if these are indeed that, could you do it that way and search using algorithms, artificially intelligent algorithms? Well, I think it is a possibility. The question is not if one can do something, because I think one can usually try all kinds of methods, but it is how efficient is it to do it that way? And how many false alarms do we get if we follow a particular route? And I think the great challenge is to find a way of inspecting as a big volume of data as possible without getting stuck with thousands or millions types of false alarms. 
Are there other data sets you could search for transients from that period with photographic plates? I mean, could you go and perhaps look through someone else's data set with the Vatican or something like that? Well, there are such data sets. However, there is one problem when one looks for uh, UAPs or probes uh, in the old data sets, and that is that you usually only see them on one image. So you cannot really say or predict where they are today. So you know that maybe they were there 70 years ago and you will confirm, yeah, there was maybe something interesting 70 years ago, but how will you find it today and how will you confirm it with modern data? So it's sparse, ultimately. Well, it's not going to bring a UAP to your hands, which I think is the ultimate goal. Isn't that the problem, though, perpetually with that issue? Because you're talking about when you talk about somebody that saw something interesting and reported it 70 years ago and they're gone, you can't question them any further. So you just have this report. Exactly. And in this case, you have just one image showing something that really shouldn't be there. But today we have much better technology. So what would an ideal system look like, in your view, to search for these things in a modern context? So this is a tricky question because I'm actually going to say that our new system, Exoprobe, is an ideal such system. But I cannot describe it in detail because we are still with a proprietary design. But I think the important thing is that whatever, no matter how we construct the system, you need to validate and verify your finding as soon as you can. And you need to be able to localize and relocalize the probe if you find it. That is how I see like these features needs to be in any system. Can you do that in-house? In other words, can you build several separate independent functioning instrument packages to self-verify it without having to... I don't know, contact another institution that may or may not have suitable equipment to pick it up. Exactly. That's a, a very good way of doing it. So where would you place such an instrument package? Now, people are going to ask me, well, there are UFO hotspots. <laughs> so is that where you pay attention to the accounts? No, not at all. I would only pay attention to, uh, well, first, if, if I'm going to look for UFOs, I'm not going to care about the things that move inside the atmosphere because I don't want to deal with millions of false positives from birds and flies and, I don't know, flying ducks <laughs> and airplanes. I don't want to be dealing with all that. So uh, I would only care about things outside the atmosphere. That, that's the thing I'm interested in. One very quickly would get, get sick and tired of looking at flying geese if you didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you this. The Vera Rubin Observatory that's going to come online with the LSST, this is giving us all sky surveys. So if you're looking for objects that are outside the atmosphere, cooking through the solar system at large, yeah. do you see this data set that's going to be coming after first light as a very important thing that you could look through in order to try to determine if there's something in the solar system itself? I think that uh, it's going to be extremely valuable and one will be able to do that. However, I still think we are going to be challenged with lots of space debris and uh, trans or things that look like fast uh, flashes that come from all these space debris and satellites. And I'm not sure that Vera Rubin will be the optimal way of looking for probes in particular. But I'm sure that one will learn extremely much about the universe with it. And maybe even find ET in some other way with help of it. 
Well, yeah, and the other idea, of course, with that is that it it will pick up interstellar objects like Oumuamua, which could be candidates for some sort of technosignature passing through the solar system. So there's that that value. Now, radar. So say you see a transient. That's weird in a modern context with modern equipment. You see a you see a transient. Of what use might radar be and methods of basically clandestine methods of lighting up uh, spy satellites and looking at that sort of thing. Do we have the technology to go further than just a visual sighting? Well, I, I don't think we even need a radar because if we uh, use the methods that we are working with, uh, with this exoprobe, we can probably localize it pretty accurately if we manage to set up the entire network as we want. And we will get spectra. So I don't think we're going to need the radar, really. Do you think that we have enough at this point technologically to... Absolutely. We have everything. But um, take the question further. So we see an unidentified orbiting object, right? (laughs) We won't call it flying because it's not the answer. Unidentified (laughs) orbiting object. Do we have any hope of determining its origin and identifying it? In other words, we see something... Well, what do we do to determine if it's of alien origin? There's a lot of things one can do. We have some ideas that, again, are a part of the proprietary design, so I unfortunately cannot say them. But there's quite a lot of simple analysis one can do. And ultimately, I think the best thing would be to, once you have localized it, to go and fetch it and bring it down to the earth if you want to study it really well. As long as it allows you to do so. <laughs> well, I can always try. You can always try. But if the, <laughs> if, the, if, the, if the orbiting UAP says, no, that tells you actually, that would actually tell you more <laughs> than actually capturing it because it would tell you that it's, it's clearly of intelligent <laughs> origin from somewhere. Well, you can, you, maybe you can flash with a like communication laser on it and see how it reacts and try to communicate with it. Hey, that's an old idea. That was uh, the, uh, let's see, I think the Bracewell probe was the idea where you do something to communicate with it. And that's the only time it communicates back. It returns your signal to you. And it's just a, basically a mirror, but that tells you enough, right? Or if it's like a cat, once you communicate to it, it just vanishes and leaves the solar system. And that was the end of your study. So, Or it gets very needy and, and then it starts wanting things from you. It's like, give me more solar energy collectors. <laughs> <laughs> and all it, does, all it does is keep asking for raw materials. <laughs> so tell us more about your new project as far as really getting into this and looking for the phenomenon in this way. And again, I want to make a distinction here, not atmospheric like UFOs, but out in space. So the basic is that we plan a network of telescopes to search for uh, like uh, solar reflections or lasers of an ET probe. So it's uh, we are looking for the same signatures as we did with the photographic plate survey, but uh, we use this network of telescopes instead. And uh, the point is that we want to have an instant validation of every transients we find. And we want to get this very accurate 3D location of an eventual probe if we find it. And then uh, the big uh, work comes in the actual techniques that we need to employ in order to distinguish anything that is human-made from anything that is alien, which is a long series of filters. A long series of filters. What does that look like? I guess it's just algorithms and, and computer stuff, essentially. Essentially, yes. Now, what happens, all right, say you get this going, and 
what happens if you make a unambiguous detection and you have to go to the scientific community and say, hey, there's something here? Do you anticipate any problems with that? I mean, can you get the rest of the scientific community to pay attention if you find a signal among the noise? I think first it's going to take probably a couple of years while people are ignoring the result. I think that's unavoidable because people will always assume that if you get something positive, it has to be wrong. But at the same time, that could give us some time. Actually, the skepticism could act in our favor because if people don't believe us, we might have enough of time to, I don't know, maybe organize a space mission to fetch it. So that's how I'm thinking. It's not always so bad if people don't believe one from the beginning. The scientific payoff, all right, if you were to discover evidence of alien life, even if it's close, which SETI has always assumed that it wouldn't be and that we're looking for distant radio signals, but not too distant. I mean, they search nearby star systems more than they do anything else. Do you anticipate that by discovering it, and we'll hypothetically say that it's there, okay, mm -hmm. and you discover it, the accolades. Do you think there is a Nobel Prize in this? And Absolutely not. And really, really. So the discovery of alien life, which would fire the public imagination above anything else, probably, would not win academic accolades, at least initially. I think it wouldn't win academic accolades at all, because if an astronomer will go in and confirm, yes, the, the unidentified objects are actually alien spaceships, then you will have one million of people who said, wait, hey, I took a picture of it before you. Look at this photo. You never believed me. So who is going to be the actual number one discoverer? Well, that begs a question. Wouldn't it be the photographic plates from 1950 as the first? I think. It will be every person who claimed to have photographed a uh, UAP. <laughs> True. So. Of course, 1950s, very early. I don't know. I guess the first, you know, the UFO phenomenon entered the public consciousness around 1947. So I, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that there are earlier photographs, but it would be the first scientifically actionable photograph, right? I don't know. I am unfortunately not aware of any photographs uh, from earlier than 47. Or, or do you mean things that scientists have published? They do go back earlier than that. I, I, I mean, there are photographic surveys from the 1890s, as I recall. If you found something in there, that would be really strange. But uh, it, I don't know what accessibility is, is like for photographic plates. How is that? How does that work? I mean, if you go in and say, I'm looking for transients, and old photographic plates. Can I see your past photographic plates? Do you get blowback just from phrasing it that way? Well, I think if one asks what has happened is that pe people say, okay, we treat it like gold. Not anyone can come here and watch them. So there is that attitude because these are really, really extremely valuable plates. So they are usually closed in, an, in a vault. Well, only, only certain people can go there and look at them. I see. So there's a there's a there's a gatekeeper on a lot of this stuff. Exactly. And that's why I think it's so important to like move on to the modern data, which is why we started this exoprobe. Because it's frustrating to be stuck when you cannot you cannot examine these things and you cannot proceed in that direction. So then you have to create your own path to solve the same problem. All sky SETI surveys, all right. We're talk starting to talk about that where, you know, you look at the entire sky instead of a targeted SETI search. 
Do these seem to possibly be of help or are they going to just knock out these transients as noise? I think they are really, really exciting, like all Sky SETI projects. I think like Laser Set is doing an amazing work. And then there are the other projects that are maybe not all Sky, but still see quite a lot of the Sky, like Panosetti, Galileo Project, Sky 360. And I think they, these projects have a very big potential to succeed. I'm very optimistic. Let's see uh, what happens when they have been running them for maybe five years or so. Yeah, it's interesting, but they probably wouldn't be of help with what you're doing looking for closer transients, right? Yeah, it's a completely different thing we work with, indeed, because we are really restricting ourselves on uh, looking for uh, transients that come for like solar reflections or lasers in from objects nearby the Earth. <laughs> so we are... That would be... <laughs> All right, that would be interesting because if you found a transient like this, right, and you're like, well, what else could it be doing? And you detected laser light from it. <laughs> that would be that would be unambiguous. And that's the big problem in SETI is ambiguity, of course, where you look at something that could be of alien origin, but rightfully the scientists usually say, well, we need to look at the natural explanations first and exhaust those. Do you think there's a problem, though, in the search for technosignatures, close, far, whatever, in scientists spotting something and then not following up on it for lack of funding or lack of interest in it because it could affect their career if they found that it was alien. Do you think that the stigma that follows the UAP phenomenon is that bad? Yes, I do think so. I am absolutely sure of it and that it's um, there is a strong stigma. And what happens is that if you go, uh, uh, you go on with your research and you say, okay, I'm going to do this anyway and I will fight against the stigma and I will prove my work yeah it can work for a while but what happens when if you are not having a permanent position you will at some point have to apply for funds and even if you are ready to uh, like face the stigma of the society maybe the committee who is uh, giving the grants is not going to do this feel the same way about it and anyone ends up with a lot of rejections so I think a lot of interesting results might have been buried under stigma that's my genuine impression. Do you think it's changing with the recent attention of the U.S. government? I'm not sure yet. I mean, I wonder if they would be open at this point to funding such a search. I don't know. I guess I will find out when I submit my grant applications. So, <laughs> it's... Now, who else do you go to? I mean... Okay, so the U.S. might be a possibility, but what are the European Union and ESA and things like that? Do you think there's any hope of funding UAP research uh, in your grain? Or how about France or something like that? Do you think that there's any possibility there? As far as I know, there has never been like any grant to pure SETI research in Europe. So I don't think this is going to happen too quickly. I think that it needs to first happen in the United States and go on for five years or two years, and then it will happen in Europe. That begs a question, though, a geopolitical question, is that could another entity like Russia or China leapfrog <laughs> and say, we're going to, we're really going to look into this and make the discovery? You got to wonder, because there are different cultural attitudes, and maybe the taboo is different in other countries as opposed to the West. Do you think that might be the case? I think so, yes. It's not impossible. Do you think it's plausible? And this is a question that a lot of people ask. How do aliens cross space-time and get here? Do you think it's plausible that they could be here? And I already know the answer to the question. It is in certain circumstances. But in your view, plausibility of an alien presence in our Earth orbit? 
I think it's absolutely plausible because if you look just in our Milky Way galaxy, you have like 40 billion of Earth-like planets. I mean, 40 billion, it's, yeah, that's what we estimate. And now we can send something like Voyager to another stellar system. So why wouldn't they be able to send something to us, a probe or so? So I think, yes, there are very good reasons to believe that there might be lots of probes everywhere. The Fermi paradox is predicated. Enrico Fermi asked this question, where are they? Do you think that applies equally to near objects of alien origin and far objects of alien origin? In other words, is the strategy that SETI uses looking for distant objects perhaps misguided? Because if you've got just one alien civilization in this galaxy that's been here for a billion years, chances are they would be here, right? Well, actually, you're totally right. I think people have spent a lot of time talking about the Fermi's paradox and where are they when they should actually be discussing where are they? Are they here? Are they a little bit further away from us in a different system? Or it's um, the problem with the Fermi's paradox is that I think too many SETI scientists have been stuck in the philosophy why we should actually just look and try to localize them. That's my point of view. So in other words, it, it's, it is, it is, do you think there's a bias here, right, between far objects and near objects? In other words, do you think that by looking for distant radio signals, which are very hard to pick up, I mean, the chances of actually picking up a, a weak radio signal from 10 light years away, inverse square law stuff, you know, it's just not very likely that we d- would do it unless it was a big screaming beacon, which was originally what Kokoni and Morrison had proposed in their paper that, that kicked off SETI, or at least modern radio SETI. Do you think it's actually would be more fruitful to look for these transient objects that might be of alien origin, as opposed to a distant radio signal that you probably aren't going to pick up? Because let's be honest, nobody that's looking at Earth is very likely to pick us up as far as our transmissions go, unless they are looking right at us with a very giant radio telescope. So do you think it might actually be more fruitful to search the solar system for evidence of alien life? Absolutely. And actually, already in the 60s, they were not only proposing to look in the radio, they said, okay, let's look in the radio, but it would also be a good idea to look for uh, spaceships and so on. However, in the 60s, you didn't have the same technology that you have available today in order to do researches in a cheap way. So in the 60s, you you wouldn't be able to survey the sky and employ a super efficient AI that would look through all the images, all these things as our technology of today. And I think that is why one left that route and went into the radio route, while today we can actually follow up on the probe route. So I think it's simply that radio SETI had its time period when people did a lot of radio SETI. And now we finally have the technology to actually do, well, searching for probes. So it's time to follow this path. Multiple detections at the same time in a photographic plate of multiple objects. I think you said nine. So these objects appear and then they're not there. And they all appear at the same time. That's really strange, right? In other words, you're not looking at one object, you're looking at multiple objects appearing at the same time. What might that implicate? Well, there are two possible explanations. One is that you have some type of extremely rare plate defects that all coincidentally look like stars. 
which maybe could be caused by some kind of unreported uh, nuclear bomb tests if you have nuclear fallout uh, coming to these plates. Or alternatively, you do actually see something real in the sky that nobody has uh, taken note of because uh, these uh, occurrences are really rare. And if they would happen in the sky today, people would think, oh, it's just satellites or space debris. So these are the two main routes one can go. Oh, that's an interesting question. Space debris, <laughs> not just Starlink, but just general space debris is going to confound this the further we go on, right? Yeah. I mean, just anything, paint chip or whatever, if you're looking at high infrared resolution, is going to confound the search. But at the same time, that stuff moves in a very predictable way in LEO. What I'm interested in is what if what if you see an object that is clearly violating the laws of physics in orbit? You know, that's always a, an ever-present. That would be so beautiful. That would be so exciting. Now, say you saw that, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, 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 let's play around with that idea. How would you publish? And what challenges would you come across publishing? I think we would publish it the same way as always. One would probably have some issues with the referees not believing it. One would still submit it to a journal. One would maybe put it on archive. And... Well, simply go uh, about it the same way as one always has done it. Do you think that the Galileo project, which you're part of based at Harvard, will face the same problem when they try to publish any findings, even an, even a null finding, when they try to find, you know, publish, because that's one of the intents of it is to publish it in credible scientific journals if they find something or don't find something. Do you think that they're going to face the same uphill battle in publishing? I think, yes, everyone are going to have the same uh, problems if, it, if they find positive results. I think it's only easy to publish SETI as long as the results are kind of negative or don't have too big implications. After multiple published papers regarding UAP and taking the subject seriously, do you think that it will then get past the hyperskepticism and blossom into a new field of study in and of itself if there is enough of a signal in the, amongst the noise to prove to scientists that there is something there to study? I think so, yes. And when one finally would confirm that, yes, there are alien probes and UAPs, then everyone, uh, all scientists would say, but of course we knew that. Of course this is evident. So I, I think it would go from hyperskepticism to, to, of course, it's evident. That's my guess. Does the notion, and again, we're just speculating, but does the notion of a close presence of an alien civilization to Earth, as in in orbit of it, keep you up at night? Is that a scary thing? No, that would be very exciting, I think. Until until it, it fires its giant space laser. And, and returns human civilization to the Stone Age. <laughs> or abducts no, me. They, well, the, well, well, it has to be said that if, if there is some sort of a presence in low Earth orbit, they'd have done something by now. They, we wouldn't be here if, that, if their motive was an invasion or something like that. But if you were a scientist 10,000 years in the future and you found an alien civilization around an exoplanet, you know, on a planet, around an exoplanet that was in a uh, lesser state of technological development. As a scientist, how would you go about studying that? Say you could go there and you could study that civilization. What would your methods be? Would you just 
stay relatively quiet and act like the UAP phenomenon seems to do here? I guess um, uh, such a civilization probably has a really, really uh, advanced bureaucracy or something that probably forbids them to interact. That would be my guess. That uh, that scares me more than an alien civilization's <laughs> presence does. A a highly advanced, artificially intelligent bureaucracy. Just what we need. <laughs> to make it as terrible as possible. But, you know, people make this point. People make this point that, well, we would be ants to a, a more advanced alien civilization. We wouldn't be of interest. But my, th- my thinking has always been, well, if they're scientists, and you're not going to travel space if you don't have science— if they're scientists, you're going to have specialists that would be curious. And it doesn't seem to me to be that far of a stretch to say that somebody long ago was studying exoplanets and they saw Earth, which has been screaming oxygen, you know, unnatural oxygen and methane levels for a very long time, billions of years or almost almost two billion years. And they saw that. Well, that's plenty of time. To send a self-repairing, self-replicating von Neumann probe to sit here and watch and just keep tabs on it, you know, and report back. Taking that further, if that von Neumann probe could print out a an atmospheric probe and it dips into the atmosphere of Earth occasionally and someone sees it, there's your UFO of alien origin that stays within the laws of physics as we know them. And you could even play with ideas where such a thing could print out aliens, you know, biology, and print that out. So that's the weird thing about the UAP phenomenon is sometimes, not always, but sometimes the really weird cases sort of look like that. And there is a plausible way. It's just that there's a stigma that prevents discussion of it. And I I wonder, at what point does the stigma get overwhelmed in your view? I think there will come a point when uh, scientists have heard, uh, well, if this is correct, because that's the first assumption we have to make. If we assume that the, the there truly is some kind of ET probes around the Earth, then at some point there will be so much of that data gathering and so much of like uh, not only that data from scientists, but also testimonies and all the things that collect together that people will say, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's uh, of course like that. And they will just accept it. Maybe one needs to prolongate the discussion so much that people eventually get bored and just agree to it. It's one possibility if, if one assumes that that is the case. Do you think that we have a sufficient handle on what we know about the universe? We have incomplete physics. Do you think that it's possible that something like this could be even weirder than aliens? I think uh, it is fully possible, but I would be uh, I would be hesitant to speculate about what. But yes, I think that we are learning about the universe all the time, and every time that we think that we know everything, we learn something even more that is much crazier than we could ever have imagined. And that's how the really big, like revolutionary science, always has progressed. So maybe there is something much weirder and maybe much scarier than aliens. If it's not aliens, then it gets on, gets into territory that we we don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go there, but we we would be forced to. Now, what happens if you get the opposite and it ends up a complete null result? Does that still answer the question in in, in terms of saying there is not an alien presence here? 
can can that be pursued to knock it out after you see enough null results? I mean, can it go the opposite way? Well, it could go in that direction, but it doesn't mean that there is an absence. It just means that, again, uh, no matter the ways how we have been looking, it's, we haven't succeeded in finding anything. And maybe, of course, we'll say that uh, maybe we are one of the very few really advanced civilizations because it might be it's possible that all these Earth-like planets are full of very primitive life or nothing at all. But I don't think we ever can reach a guarantee of being alone in the universe. Oh, no, you couldn't because, well, I mean, we only try observing outside of the observable universe. Mm. And we don't know how far that extends beyond exactly. what we can see. So you could never eliminate it. The thing is, though, is that statistically... If we are alone, that's actually worse than the suggestion of the existence of alien life, because then we live on a very, very special planet that's like the island from Lost, where organic chemistry that, you know, happens here that happens nowhere else in the entire universe. And all of those stars and galaxies, the myriad of them are dead but this place is not. And I actually find that that that, that to be an even scarier option. Absolutely. Uh, in total agreement with you, it would be terrifying. Yeah, that that's where things like Copernican principles and all that drop off the table. And this is this is a very unnatural, very special world, especially when you look at it in, in terms of quantum mechanics and observation and all this stuff. We're the only thing <laughs> capable of building detectors in the entire universe. And you start to run up against weird stuff like the double slit experiment that it's like, what exactly is going on here? But if you have aliens or you have a multiverse for that matter, if it, it becomes more understandable. And I, I actually hope with that we find aliens or even just a microbe on Europa or something like that in the oceans of Europa so that we don't have to wonder about that existential question of what it really means to be alone. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we will find microbes on other planets. And I think we will succeed with it. It's just that we need to have some patience. I'm an optimist. And we need funding and missions. And we need funding, exactly. Yeah. So you got to get, you have to convince NASA to start doing life detection missions again <laughs> for microbes on Mars. And <laughs> I think a, a, a nice thing, a nice aspect of this is at least we have hints of it. The, the positives, which may have been false positives, but maybe they were real, uh, the Viking experiments or things like that, that we might actually find that life is more robust than we ever thought it would be on places like Mars, like the surface, the radioactive surface of Mars. Or if recent work, in, which I've done some recent interviews on these topics of how RNA forms and how the cell membranes form, you know, form. And it starts to put places like Io on the table that maybe early on when it had some water, it might have spawned biology. So I don't know that we have enough, a broad enough view of life based on our sampling of one to predict what life could be like. The question is, is that if it's really weird life, how do you detect it? That is a very important question indeed. And I think we might not be ready for some hundreds of years to even answer it. So we probably would only would be able to detect life the way as we know it. Do you think, all right, say you go forward with the work and you detect something and we go up and we, we, we collect it and bring back an alien artifact from low Earth or orbit or something like that, geosynchronous orbit or wherever it may be. 
What do you anticipate the effect on human civilization will be? Do you think everybody will just shrug? Or do you think that it could cause chaos, as has been suggested in the past, social chaos, and that we we couldn't handle it? No, I don't think so. I think uh, humans have a wonderful thing of being able to adapt to new circumstances. What I think it would happen is that if you bring the probe, then suddenly there would turn out that some other agencies have uh, also found some probes, etc., and then there would start to turn up a lot of probes everywhere. And then one would actually, as a humanity, start to collaborate to understand what everyone has found. That would be what I expect. And do you think that if it turned out weird and would be a blow to the human ego, if it turns out they're not here to study us? They came for, <laughs> for the, the cats. Like Star Trek. Or the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they came for the cats and that we're of no consequence. <laughs> I would actually really like that. That would be that would be amazing if we the first dis- detection of an alien civilization is, you know, a message that says "shut up, we're studying your cats." <laughs> well, I think that would be a positive thing for humanity. I think it would be if if we were told that we weren't really that important in comparison to iguanas or something like that. We might be get, able to get along a little bit better. <laughs> I think so, too. We would have suddenly a much stronger solidarity among ourselves. Well, I think, you know, as a serious question, though, the discovery of an alien civilization, no matter what, is going to have that effect. I think so, too. Because because we are no longer nationalities. We are the humans in that context. And we enter the world of science fiction at that point when we know that we're not alone, even if it's just a distant radio signal, narrowband signal that's unambiguously alien in origin we suddenly are in a much, much broader context. And I think that could be a positive effect of a detection of an alien civilization, don't you? I actually oddly expect positive effects, unless uh, we detect them by that they come to invade us. You know, though, again, if that was their motive, they'd have done it. Exactly. They wouldn't have waited for us to develop nuclear technology and things like that. Or they wait for the right moment. It's not impossible that either. You can't know. True. Yeah, well, well, that's 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 one thing is they might be here to keep us from destroying ourselves. <laughs> and or, you know, they 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 view all life in the universe as precious and rare so they protect it and we just haven't done anything yet that's to the level that they would um they would consider to be dangerous or they might even be a police force because they they could say when those humans develop artificially artificial super intelligence that's smarter than they are, we have to intervene. And that it's just simply, they're sentinels, you know, just watching to see what we do to make sure we don't develop something that could threaten everyone else in the galaxy. And other- or, they're, or they're just preparing the starter and uh, waiting for the party to begin. True, that's the other thing is, is it, what is the nature of an alien civilization? We have no idea. So it could be that when we do discover one, it's a machine. And it it is it could be the collective development of technology of an alien civilization for far longer than we have, and that the end result is everything in the galaxy is machines. And that would be so depressing. Actually, that is the second scenario that I would find very scary. Not that we are entirely alone, but that we are surrounded by by machines, or that is that is the only thing that survives enough long. That would be a terrible scenario because. 
then you got to ask the question, where is its biological progenitors? Exactly. And it, it, it might tell you, it'd be like, they went obsolete. <laughs> I, I, I don't want that universe. Um, no, me neither. Then it might the, be better to be alone in the end. But at the same time, you, you could just as easily find that alien civilizations conclude that biology is better and they just keep it. And we might do the same thing. We never go through the singularity or anything like that. And we never achieve super intelligence because we wish to remain human and continue as a biological existence. So they might make that that choice. Um, in regards to the UAP, though, and Jacques Vallée has has made this case that sometimes it looks even weirder than aliens. And I was I was uh, hinting at that earlier. Do you think based on an overview of the UAP phenomenon, do you think that it actually looks like what you would expect as a scientist an alien civilization to look like? Is it consistent with that, do you think? Now, I'm not so sure about this. I cannot answer that question at all because I am no expert on UAPs. What I can help with is to examine the hypothesis of that the UAPs are some kind of extraterrestrial probes. That is where I can help. If that is something much weirder than aliens, Let's say that this is, I don't know, some multidimensional creatures, then uh, I will not be able to do very much for the topic. Yeah. How would you even measure a multidimensional creature? <laughs> how do you start? At <laughs> you least would you have to ask it the number of dimensions. <laughs> you would, yes. Um, and, and we just don't know anything about that. I mean, we know about our three-dimensional world with a dimension of time, but upper dimensions, all you got really is the variations of string theory, 10 dimensions and all that. But what would that even look like if it somehow could manifest in in what we can perceive? It's like Carl Sagan's old Cosmos episode where he was showing the Flatlanders and what they would perceive a three-dimensional creature or object passing through their plane, what that would look like. And we can't even imagine what an upper dimensional object would even look like, right? Exactly. So I, I think when it comes to UAPs, I stay with my simple hypothesis that I can help with and to explore. <laughs> now, what would you say for to any other scientist thinking, hmm, this, this UAP phenomenon, maybe there's something worth studying there. Maybe we should try to figure this out. But if I do it, my career could end. What advice would you give researchers that are sitting on the sidelines thinking, well, maybe I should go and join the Galileo Project or something like that? What advice would you give them? We only live once. Do what you are curious about and hope that things work out anyway. For joining us today and as your work continues, and hopefully you can get this new project funded, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.